Good morning, friends. It's Wednesday, so it's Bible study, and I'm glad that you all are here today. Last week, I had such fun. I got all kind of feisty there at the end, um, and I received some very fun notes about last week's teaching. It kind of resonated with a lot of you um, in a pretty unique way, and so I'm grateful for all of that. Uh, let me know if you like the music at the beginning. I kind of had this moment this morning where I said, you know, I like a little music. And I thought, are there any Revelation songs? And when I put it in, it came up, this song from Phillips, Craig, and Dean that I know well came out a decade ago. Um, I assume it's good with Revelation. Um, it was just nice to have a little music, I thought, in the morning. So we are here for chapter 10. Glad that you are with us. A reminder that I want you to be a part of this digital community. So visit stmichael.org slash RBS, that's Rector's Bible Study. Sign up, email Meredith Rose, let her know you want to be a part of this email list, and we can get you on that list. And on that website as well, the stmichael.org slash RBS, you can download our, our Bible study bookmark that has the actual schedule for the rest of the school year there, so you know which chapters we're doing, which weeks, and which weeks, like in the middle of March, that we will skip one week, so we can all be on the same page. Now let's start with a prayer, and we'll get rolling. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with very grateful hearts for this beautiful day, and we ask that you help us to put down those things which trouble us, put down those things that worry us, and we hope that you can fill us with your spirit. Help us to breathe in your word that we can become more and more the people you created us to be, and that together we can be the body of Christ here on earth and wrap your arms of love around all of our neighbors. As we study your word today, help us to know your truth, that it shapes the way we live and the way that we care for one another. God, I ask you to be with all those today who are hurting, those who are sick, that they know your presence and are surrounded by support, that they may be able to come through whatever hardships that they are suffering through and know that in the end, we love you and we trust you. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a reminder that I love comments. I love questions, so send them to me. I definitely want those comments and those questions. It helps me to know where to direct the teachings. And you can do that either live or you can do that after the fact. If you're watching on demand, make those comments in the comment thread or send Meredith an email and she collects all of those each week so that I can hopefully answer some of those questions either explicitly or either implicitly in the teachings. Today we're looking at chapter 10 and if you read ahead, you know that chapter 10 is short. We're talking 11, 11 verses. So this is gonna be simply two parts. Part one's going to be the angel with the little scroll, and part two is going to be John receiving that little scroll. So we're going to have an angel come on the scene holding a scroll, and then John's going to receive that scroll from the angel and then eat it. It's a good story. We're going to have plenty to talk about, and so let's jump right in. Chapter 10, verse 1. And I, John, saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand. Setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, he gave a great shout like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants, the prophets. We'll pause there. That's what we're going to look at in this very first section. Now let's place this chapter. 
right? This chapter falls between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. It's sort of a little interlude, so to speak, between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Now, we know we've seen this a few times. We will get a bunch of things happening in a row, and then it's as if there's a pause. And we have this exposition between these two pieces of action. I want to recall what I said a few weeks ago. Actually, it was probably a couple months ago. Revelation is not written as a concurrent set of actions or events. Instead, Revelation is written in little snippets of moments and stories that all happen in a concurrently. Oh, I used concurrent earlier, though. I used it wrong. Revelation is not written as if every single story is happening in line, like one linear timeline. Instead, it is written with multiple stories happening concurrently. So, rather than thinking that there's this big gap between the sixth and seventh trumpets, I think what's really happening in chapter 10 is that John's having this other experience, right? It's almost as if two things are happening at once. You've got the angels sounding their trumpets over here, and then you've got John having this almost private experience over here. So if this were a movie or a TV show, you would see the camera angles switch. It's almost like something's happening in this room, something's happening in that room, in the same house at the same time, but you can't really show both happening at once. We have to understand that different threads of this big macro story are happening at the same time. So I know sometimes in the last, in the last little interlude chapter, Someone said, why is there all this time between one trumpet and the other? Instead of thinking of it that way, just take chapter 10 as almost this side event. While the seven angels are sounding their trumpets in succession, this side event is happening. Okay. Remember, too, that after the sixth trumpet sounded, there was this horrible scene, right? When that sixth trumpet sounded, there was this horror, right? A star fell from heaven to the bottomless pit. Out of the pit came this dark smoke, and from the smoke came these torturing locusts. Angels then were released from the river Euphrates. They led a cavalry of millions to kill one-third of all of humanity. Oh my goodness. Right after all this happens, we see another mighty angel coming from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. The action is intense. And what John sees after this horror of the gloom and doom and terror is this mighty angel coming down looking very specific. We're going to unpack the way that this angel looks because remember... Symbolism, right? The way this angel looks is important for us to unpack, okay? So, before we take a look at how this angel actually looks, I want to pause and talk a bit about angels in general. So, with Daniel and now with Revelation, we're getting a lot of angel talk. Multiple people have asked over the months, for me to say a bit more about angels. A couple weeks ago, Kimberly asked a very specific question that I think gets at what I'd like to do today around angels. Um, she asked, or she kind of made a statement question, where she said, learning that angels were bringing such horrors seems really troubling because angels elsewhere in the Bible were bringing great joy and singing praises. In other words, what is with these angels? that seem to be almost so non-angelic. I think it's a great observation, and it's probably made by others, right? We kind of like to think of angels in a sweeter way, a more cheerful way, perhaps kind of like fat babies with wings, right? Those angels are not really biblical angels, all right? Angels in the Bible are described with a lot more strength and a lot more intimidation. Angels are, pretty consistently throughout the entire Bible, intermediaries between humans and God. So in other words, they're sent as messengers. 
Angels mean something. Angels are meant to teach humanity or tell humanity or reveal to humanity in some special way. Angels, however, differ in how those revelations or those messages are delivered. So I'd like to look at two basic, uh, I guess three really basic ways that angels are represented in the Bible. Before we get to those three specific ways, we certainly have angels referenced, and I'll get to that. I want to talk about three specific ways angels are actually described in the Bible. First, we have seraphim, right? We know this word seraphim, the seraph or the seraphim, and the Bible only mentions seraphim twice. Multiple other times in the Bible, there that the root word of seraphim, which is serap, is used in a very similar way. But seraphim, described specifically, is really only found in Isaiah. And so in Isaiah's big grand vision in the temple, we learn a few things about that particular category of angels, the seraphim. We learn seraphim have six wings, two are used to cover their face, two are used to cover their feet, and two are used for flying. All right? Seraphim have hands. Seraphim are usually defined as the burning ones, or they're referenced in some way about being fiery. And that's when I referenced earlier that root word serap is used in other times to describe fiery serpents that are used by God in certain ways. And so seraphim really have this seeming identity around being a flame or burning. And those flying, burning angels are part of Isaiah's oracle, that kind of vision that he receives from God. He sees angels in that particular way. The other prominent description of angels is cherubim, right? So the cherubim and the seraphim. So seraphim are a little bit scary, right? You've got six wings and they're covered and they're likely burning or on fire in some way like that. Cherubim are mentioned many more times in the Bible, dozens of times. Cherubim, however, are not so much intimidating like I I imagine the seraphim. Cherubim are a little more kind of freaky. So cherubim always have multiple faces, right? So that's kind of creepy enough. The cherubim have multiple faces typically on the same body, but those faces can look very different. They're not always human. So in Ezekiel, we see cherubim described in many different ways. At one point, they have four faces, man, ox, lion, eagle. That should ring a bell, right? Man, ox, lion, eagle. That sounds like the four gospels, right? And we've discussed before, I think a few weeks ago, how those relate to the four gospels in the Bible. Another time in Ezekiel, cherubim are have faces like a cherub, a baby, a baby, a man, a lion, an eagle. That just gets even creepier. Then you've got two faces at some point in Ezekiel, man and lion, and then you've got cherubim described as general humanoid form, but sometimes they have stiff legs with cow's feet. Other times they've got human hands, sometimes two, sometimes four. They've got four wings, two of which cover their bodies and two of which they use to fly. And then Ezekiel also describes them in this weird way as having whirring wheels, like making noise and spinning in some way. Right. Okay. So we've got seraphim, intimidating, cherubim, weird and creepy. Then we've got the archangels. Now, St. Michael and all angels, right? That's our church. We are somewhat familiar with these archangels. If you think of our altar, our main altar in our large worship space, we see one big archangel. That is Michael. Then we see three other archangels. Interestingly, Gabriel is the obvious other archangel, right? The other two archangels just really don't figure prominently at all in Scripture, Raphael and Uriel. And so what we get are almost two tiers of archangels. You've got Michael and Gabriel up top, and you've got Raphael and Uriel down below. This, These archangels interact with humans in very specific ways. So Gabriel tends to be the true talk-to-you messenger of God. So in Luke, 
we see Gabriel do a few things. First, Luke appears to Zechariah to inform him that he's going to have a child despite his old age. That's John the Baptist. Then, of course, we see Gabriel and Luke appear to Mary to tell her she's going to get pregnant. How am I going to get pregnant? And he says it's going to be by the Holy Spirit. Then we have Gabriel appear to the shepherds proclaiming Jesus' birth and encouraging their adoration. At that point, Gabriel's with lots of angels, right? There are angels all over the place with the shepherds. And now we get to this idea of kind of the heavenly host. Cherubim probably, seraphim probably, and who knows? There could have been plenty of other angels. Michael is perhaps the chief general archangel. And Michael is not one to speak to humans in the Bible. Michael is more the one to take action. Now we are going to get to Michael in Revelation. He comes becomes prominent at the end of Revelation, so we're going to get there. Michael's also referenced by Gabriel back in Daniel, you may remember, as being the Savior. And so there's been interesting writings over the years about Michael and Jesus both having this messianic figureship in biblical writings because of Daniel. Michael, throughout time, though, that's never really stuck, right? Jesus, Messiah, Michael, the actor, the general, the the one who fights the evil, fights the devil. Michael, an interesting note, is the only angel who has ever been sainted. I remember when I came here, it never occurred to me, within the first year, someone said to me, how is Michael, who has never been human, a saint? Very good question. I want you to know, I have tried multiple times to figure out if anyone ever wondered about that or wrote about that when it came to the church using Michael as a saint. Um, Not really. Basically, in the 18th century, mid to late 1700s, we see Michael begin to be used as a symbol of prayer by the Pope. Then, in 1862... Pope Pius IX canonizes Michael officially. He's beatified in the late 1700s. He's canonized in the mid-1800s. So Michael hasn't been a saint for all that long, honestly. In 1862, Michael becomes a saint, and then we get this named feast, St. Michael and All Angels. That's in late September. That's our patronal saint, which is odd because I'm not... Not entirely sure we get to assign gender to angels, but that's a different conversation. Michael takes on a different kind of identity in the history of the church and, of course, impacts us. Now, let's talk about kind of angels writ large. What are angels? I've talked about how they're messengers, but one of the things that church theologians, historians have written about over time is the idea that angels are somehow only specifically one person. So I'm going to, at the risk of doing too much personification, just hang with me. When we speak of Gabriel or Michael, I think we all basically understand that as being a single being, right? So when Gabriel comes and talks to Zechariah, talks to Mary, that Gabriel or Daniel or whomever, Gabriel's the same angel, right? It's the same being. However, St. Augustine wrote, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in a different place. Eh, St. Augustine wrote about the danger of naming angels as if angels could receive names, like they were the kinds of beings that stayed in some discernible form, as like you and I do. You know, we are born, we are named, our fundamental form in this life does not change. Angels are a bit more like spirit. And so St. Augustine, in trying to figure out or discern or guide this idea of, do we name angels? Do angels have certain beings that do not change and the like? He wrote, angel is the name of their office, not of their nature. If you seek the name of their nature, it is spirit. If you seek the name of their office, it is angel. From what they are, spirit, from what they do, 
angel. I found that fascinating because effectively what St. Augustine, and this is St. Augustine of Hippo from, you know, the North African bishop, what he's talking about here is that angel is actually an action. So there is a, a heavenly host around God of spirit. And it could be a single God spirit. It could be spirit that is almost tendrilled. I mean, if you think about it, I kind of like the idea that the spirits are connected to one God almost like fingers or hands and feet. And when those spirits go to do a thing, that's when they become angelic. And it is in their angelic angelicism, it's not a real word, but it's in their angelicism that they actually become angel because their action is angelic, that messenger. But they're never disconnected. They're never separated from God. It's effectively as if God reaches a hand down in the form of this spirit to communicate and to touch humanity. We receive that touch or that communication as an angel. And yet, angel may not really be a separate being from God at all, but rather just the only way we can perceive them. Think of it this way. God's presence is simply overwhelming, right? We see that in the story of Moses. Moses has to look away from the bush. God tells Moses, do not look upon me. God shuffles around the corner of the mountain, which, you know, whatever. But the general truth in that story is Moses can't really look upon God. It is, it is too much. We can be overwhelmed. We know when God is present in the ark that if you touch the ark, you die. We know that even when People try to help the ark. If they touch it, they die, right? God is just too much for us. We are human. And so in a sense, the angelicism is a way for God to speak to us such that we can understand, we can receive it. We can discern God in a way that doesn't overwhelm us. Now, that being said, Angels are still scary. They are strong, they are mighty, they are intimidating, they're creepy, they're weird, right? So this is not a warm hug. This isn't like a sweet friend showing up to walk with you through the neighborhood, right? This is, this is heavy. Before we get into the angel here in Revelation, I'm almost done. I want to note that angels are part of all the Abrahamic traditions. Obviously, angels are part of the Jewish tradition. We know that because in the Old Testament or and in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see angels figure prominently. That's a little strong, but they're definitely there and they play a good role. Michael and Gabriel are definitely prominent in our Gospels. Well, Matthew and Luke. Sorry. Gabriel and Matthew and Luke, Michael and Revelation. We've got the archangels in the New Testament. And Michael and Gabriel, by name, as archangels, appear multiple times in the Quran. So Jews, Christians, Muslims, all have a very strong angelic tradition. I think it's very easily argued that actually in Islam, the angelic tradition is the strongest of all the three. We can unpack that later if you want, but just Trust me, take my word for it. I've studied it a long time. Muslims, angels figure most prominently for Muslims more than Christians and Jews. It's almost like most for Muslims, second for Christians, third for Jews. Whatever that's worth. Okay, let's keep moving. So as I noted a few minutes ago, this mighty angel appears right after or during, right, all this horror from the sixth trumpet. The appearance of this angel is symbolic, significantly symbolic. We're going to parse this out a little bit. So we're told basically four things about this angel. Comes down in a cloud, rainbow over his head, 
face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. All right. Cloud, cloud of white. God is in the message itself, even though hidden. Right? When we see clouds in the Bible, we know God is present in the cloud. God is present in that sort of fuzzy, foggy kind of way, right? We know this, the cloud that God appears in with the ark, as I mentioned earlier, and so on. So the angel is coming down with God, representing God. God is there. Then we get a rainbow, a rainbow over the head, right? And we can immediately reference both earlier in Revelation, where we saw a bit of that rainbow stuff, but of course, with Noah after the flood, right? God's promise, God's love and commitment to humanity living is present here with this angel. This rainbow over this angel's head reminds us and would absolutely remind any of John's readers of God's very, very real promise of love and protection to the human faithful. Then we see face like the sun. Now, Face like the sun. Sun with a U, sun with an O. So we've got this idea of both the literal ball of fire and the son of man, the son of God. Jesus, in his transfiguration, glows brightly like the sun. Moses, when he comes down off the mountain, having received the Ten Commandments and spoken with God, glows brightly like the sun. So this angel is hearkening back to multiple biblical references to a glowing, a sun-like appearance. And then we get the legs like pillars of fire. Pillars of fire. Remember a pillar of fire? Pillar of fire protected the Israelites as they fled from Pharaoh out of Egypt. Just like the cloud, God is present in the pillar of fire. That kind of presence is very critical to hear when we read this description of the angel. There is no question that this angel is bringing all of God with it. That's very important because this angel will speak for God, bear God to John. This angel embodies the total sovereignty of the creator. When this angel hits the ground, what happens? One foot goes on the land, one foot goes on the sea. This angel is extending and covering the whole creation. This angel comes with the word of God, a voice like a lion, the lion lamb of the Messiah, swears an oath to God that he will represent God well, properly, rightly. And then what he carries is the ultimate gift the actual word of God on this little scroll represents every promise that God represents. The word actually on this scroll itself is what is being brought down and will ultimately be given to John. And this word is for the good, not the evil. And John's going to learn all about that here in just a moment. All right, so I see one question. Give me one second. It's a long one. <laughs> okay, so Greg asks. Greg first says, Revelation is wacko. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. I mean, it is... Someone said to me last week, it is just fascinating to read all of these descriptors and all of this creativity. I mean, it's just visually stunning, right? It's like scattershot of amazing imagery. Even when I read this, which, I mean, I've read Revelation countless times over the years, and in preparation for this Bible study, I will usually read a chapter at least three times very carefully because I will read through it, and then I'll read through it a second time, and I will see words, descriptors, that I didn't notice the first time. And then I know I need to do it a third time because I will catch at least one word or tweak of something that gives even more color 
to the story. It's, it is rich. It is absolutely rich. Um, but Greg gets to, what are we to learn from Revelation? Well, Greg, what an apropos question. Um, <laughs> in general, we are learning from Revelation. That's what I hope we're all doing every week, or I'm not quite doing my job. Um, in general, I think going back to what I think I said in, eh, I don't know, the second or third week, <sighs> Revelation is a vision from God for faithful people going through life's hardships. And I don't mean the hardest things that we could possibly go through in life. I don't want anyone out there to hear me say, unless your life is really hard, like really hard, then you're not really going through hardships. Revelation is here to speak to us Whenever we go through any of life's difficulties, God does not walk separately from us through anything. Just because you haven't experienced something that we might consider ultimate tragedy does not mean your life is not hard. Think of what we have all been doing over the last 12 months. It has been hard in unique ways. Perhaps we haven't lost a close family member to COVID, but we've absolutely lost a way of being. I think loss in any form is an opportunity for us to reconsider what we actually do with our faith, reconsider what God is doing in us, reconsider what our giftedness can be. Part of what we will be doing all spring, Lent and Easter, here at St. Michael, I encourage you to join us for our sermon series in both Lent and Easter, is we're going to be looking at the way our individual faith has been shaped and also changed because of the pandemic, and then how individually we come together in the community of the church, and how we can actually reshape who our community will be. I've heard lots of people say, I can't wait to get back to normal. And I want you to hear me say, let's not settle for back to normal. Let's be so much better than that. All right, if we think back to a year plus ago, it's not like things were great. Let's do better than that. Let's do better than what back to normal really is. Let's take the opportunity where we have really kind of been stripped raw Regardless of how, of the specifics of your pandemic experience or the economic experience that you've had or the divisive election we just went through, whatever that is, we are all more tired, more raw, more tender than we've likely been collectively in any of our memory. Definitely in my lifetime. And rather than lick those wounds, rather than get frustrated about the difficulty, rather than going to God and saying, why? All of that is fine. Do that if you need to. But rather than stopping there, Revelation teaches us that God never stops, never lets us go, never leaves us alone, that everything is working for God's good. That God is part of this great cosmic res rescue mission. Our own discipleship and our acts of faith weave into God's huge tapestry, moving this created order toward healing and wholeness. That's really what Revelation teaches us. It's a good story. It's a great ride. It is fascinating and fantastic. And the message is pretty simple. God wins. And even when the going gets hard, God's with us. Okay. I see a few other questions real quickly. We'll jump in. Why was John told not to write his vision down? Interesting question. Let's look at what is actually said in those first few verses, all right? If we look at, uh, 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 let's go back to verse 5. Um, mm, mm, mm. Oh, we're not there yet. Is that what we're about to do? 
these next few verses. Okay, we're going to get to that question. Let me read the rest of the chapter 10 and then we'll get there. Um, Dottie says, um, do you read in the original language? And if yes, how does the translation affect what we are reading understanding? Oh, Dottie, I love that question. I appreciate your belief in me that I can read Greek that well. Um, I did study Greek. I can kind of struggle through Greek, sort of like a you know, 14-year-old who's taken a couple years of Spanish can try and ask, you know, order something off a Spanish menu. Um, I'm good enough to know the basics, vocabulary, grammar, that sort of stuff. I cannot just read it in the original language. However, what I try to do is when we get to interesting words, I go and research etymology, right? I kind of want to know, is this word, because what Dottie's getting at is, I think, important for us to remember. When we read in English, it is not what John wrote in Greek. It is a a best attempt at trying to communicate what John actually wrote. It's a good enough place to be. But when we try to pick apart real small nuances, we just simply can't do that in a translation. When people in the world, in our own lives, grab one verse or one fragment of a verse out, and try to make some huge definitive statement about God or how we should be as Christians, just don't listen. It is just not possible. We're not reading this in the original language. Here's my favorite example of what I mean. In Greek, the English word for love has four versions. If we don't actually know each of those four versions to be able to differentiate the different kinds of love and then to be able to apply those different types of love within the context of what Jesus taught, then all we're hearing as Christians is love. That's not, it's not good enough to make decisions about fundamental ways of living. And what I mean is, if you read, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And you think love, and then you put a limit on that love, you are missing the point of love in the Greek, that agape love, which is sacrificial love. That means you have nothing to say about whether you love or do not love. It is agape, it is sacrificial. Very different than the filio kind of love, which is brotherly love. Very different from the eros kind of love, which is marriage and romantic love and on and on, right? We've got these different ways of understanding the words that radically change the way that we would interpret them. But in English, we only see love. To that end, know that when appropriate, I do parse out the Greek as we're reading Revelation, to try and see nuance. And so if you ever wonder why I may have made a certain kind of conclusion, please ask. I don't want to be that guy that says, in the Greek, every 10 minutes. Instead, I try to take what it says in the Greek, apply it for something helpful to us. And if you ever wonder, like, why in the world would I have drawn that conclusion when the text obviously says X, please write that question down because I bet at least half the time, it's because I dug into the Greek and looked at the way those words are used in other books of the Bible to try and glean a more specific understanding, to draw a more specific conclusion about how we might apply the idea. Okay, thank you all for those good words. Let's keep moving. The second half of this chapter is about John receiving the scroll. We'll start reading at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So, when, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take it and eat. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, 
my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. All right. So this question I received just moments ago was, why was John told not to write his vision down? The answer, broadly, is that the written word is not prophetic. The spoken word becomes prophecy. I'm going to explain that in a minute. That's the basic answer. Let's look just at the action here before we get into what I meant by prophecy and prophetic words. This mighty angel's on the scene, right? John watches the dramatic moment, and then he hears the voice of God speak to him. God instructs John to take the little scroll from the mighty angel and eat it. The scroll, we know, represents the word of God unsealed by the lamb given to John to eat. And after John eats the scroll, he is told to prophesy again. This moment can be very strange, but is actually perfectly clear. See, the strangeness of this moment comes in the delivery of God's word, right? Mighty angel coming down, straddling the land and the sea, and his legs are on fire, and his head has a rainbow, and all this kinds of drama. But he brings the scroll to John to eat. Now, as I said, weird, strange, on the surface. But I want to invite you to hear this story with the mind and the heart, to see the story with the eyes and the innocence of a child. Most of us have read books to children, and we know children receive these visions in any book they read, and they know exactly what these visions mean. It's only when we become adults that we start to say, wait, what about his fiery legs? You know, children don't really ask those kinds of questions. They just receive. And so I want us to just stop using our adult intellectualism and instead look at this story through the eyes of a child. And we will see perfectly clearly what is happening right now. We know God's word is on the scroll. We got this, right? We've Figured this out chapters ago. Angels are God's messengers. So this mighty angel is bringing the word of God in a tangible form right there on the scroll. We know this. John has been invited to witness this incredible sight. And so he's chosen to receive God's word from the angel messenger. Makes sense to me, right? If John's able to see the heavenly throne and all of this action, then why wouldn't John be chosen to receive God's word? And then eating the scroll means what? Well, God's word is now in John. God's word goes deep inside of him, which means what? Now John can speak God's words. More specifically, John can now prophesy God's word. That is what is happening in this strange moment so very simply. God's word has been given to John, internalized by John, has transformed John. And now John can prophesy. Let's look at what prophecy truly is. All right. Prophecy in the Bible is a unique idea. We might consider prophecy as simply speaking about God, but it is not. All right. I'm a preacher, right? An occasional teacher. And although I might occasionally luckily, accidentally, and with God's grace, kind of fall into a prophetic moment? I am not a prophet in the biblical sense. Biblical prophets are those who speak a new reality into existence. Biblical prophets speak with that God authority in a very tangible way. Think about the dry bones, right? Ezekiel looking out on those dry bones and God says, prophesy to those dry bones that they will rise and they will receive flesh and they will walk. And what does he do? He speaks those words. He prophesies to those dry bones and up they come with new life. 
being a prophet means that internally you bear God's word in a very tangible way. And making God's word live takes speech. When John's told not to write, what John's really being told is something perfectly consistent with prophets throughout the Bible. Prophesy means speak. A prophetic word is spoken. And if John simply writes, he's not living into that prophetic identity. John is that lucky observer who now has the responsibility, having received God's word internally, to go and speak God's word into reality. Now, there's a moment here that is particularly poignant for us as disciples. The angel says to John, Take it and eat it, the scroll. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. Then John took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but when he had eaten it, his stomach was made bitter. Again, this might seem a little strange and opaque to adult intellectualism. So, once again, I want us to look at this through the eyes of a child. And it becomes so very simple. God's word sounds sweet and wonderful, beautiful, joyful when we first hear it. Think about blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are on and on. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Keep going. All of these words that Jesus embodied, these words that prophets have offered over the centuries, these words at first hearing are empowering, are comforting, are beautiful. But these words actually need to take shape. And when we begin to do something with God's words, when we experience the difficulty of actually living out God's words in real life, man, that struggle is bitter. Think about, as disciples, some of the things we struggle with the most. I mean, Probably the most common question I get has to do with how we're supposed to do this Christian discipleship stuff. How many times do I forgive someone? Jesus says seven times 70, right? It's not a limit. We discussed this last week. Forgiveness is all the time because, thank God, God forgives us all the time. How do we love? Love is all the time, no limits. And yet, we all, at some point, wonder how do we love? Don't wonder how? Love, right? Well, when you hear that from God, when you hear God say love, right? When Jesus says just love everybody, man, that feels good, right? I mean, that feels warm and fuzzy and yeah, yeah, we're going to love everybody. And then it's like two minutes later, when we experience anyone else, we wonder, then how do we love? Some people are easy to love. Some people are hard to love. You know what I'm saying? Right? We all know this. Hard to love people deserve our love too. People who live differently than us deserve our love. People who hurt us deserve our love. Love your enemy. How hard is that? It sounds beautiful, right? In our nice little bubbles, sitting in front of our screens right now, love our enemy sounds beautiful. How do we do that? How do we love people who have hurt us? And I'm not talking about annoyed us or insulted us. I am talking about that deep, life-altering hurt. Love anyway. It is bitter to try and live this out. Because although God's word might be sweet at first, we 
in our perfection, in our imperfection, struggle. We, in our imperfection, can never get this right. Some of you may have heard me say before, Sundays for me, as a priest, as a preacher, you know, leading a church, Sundays for me don't need to be dramatic and flamboyant, although, you know, occasionally I like a fire breather. I mean, we know this. But Sundays for me are meant to remind us of the stuff we forget. In our humanity, we hear God's word and we love God's word and then we struggle with God's word and then we forget God's word and we have to be reminded of what we already know. Sundays are where we get reminded. If we are genuinely honest with ourselves, we know that we are profoundly broken and imperfect and in need of God's perfection and healing and wholeness. And every time we worship, every time we study together, every time we pray, we are asking God for that wholeness, for that healing. Every time we try to struggle with the sweet, bitter word of God, we are trying to be faithful disciples. That is the journey we share together. Discipleship isn't a moment when someone says magic words and we're all of a sudden saved from hell. That's not what this is. Discipleship is a lifelong commitment and journey that can begin at any time. One of those other frustrating things, right? For those of us who are here in Bible study, my guess is most of us have been pretty good for most of our lives, that we've made this commitment, that we've done our best most of the time. Of course, we have failed, but we've tried. And then what? Some terrible person gets to confess faith right before death, be forgiven, and it's the same? Yes. That is unfair. And love is unfair. All of this that we learn from Revelation is so profoundly impactful to the way we live our life. And what we see here at the very end of chapter 10 is this moment when John's experience of God through the angel is so perfectly right. John receives God's word, sweet at first, bitter in his stomach. And I kind of believe that John knows his task is not going to be easy. And yet, here he is. And thank God he was because there's such goodness to glean from Revelation. All right, my friends, we've reached the end of chapter 10. I don't see any more questions right now. And so if you've got some, feel free to make them in the chat. If you want to email Meredith, Meredith collects all those questions for me. I will definitely keep a running tally of all of these questions and we'll get to them at some point in the future. One question that I'd love to get to, um, and we're gonna jump into that in chapters 11 or 12, is whether or not the sealing of the good followers of God protected them from the pain of these plagues, right? Okay, so they didn't die, okay, but are they also kind of living in little bubbles of protection or are they going through these plagues as well? That's a big question and a good one, and so we'll get to that one in the next couple weeks. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and God bless you all. Bye.